and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called dry ground land and gathered the waters he called and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good the enuma elish it's an ancient uh, narrative found by a British archaeologist back in the mid 19th century it's it's a creation myth. And it begins, coincidentally enough, with a watery abyss, sort of the way Genesis begins with a watery abyss. Describes the creation of light as a thing independent of any light source, the way Genesis has light without a creation of a light source. Then you have sun, moon, stars coming later, just like in Genesis. And part of the creation involves uh, dividing water from land and gathering the water in this firmament, firmament above in the heavens. Again, just like in Genesis. The myth culminates with the creation of human beings, followed by the creator resting from all he had made. Again, like Genesis. Now, the British archaeologist discovered this account in Mosul, Iraq. But it's not Iraqi. It predates the existence of Iraq. It dates back to when that region was known as Babylon. Now, people have offered a variety of explanations between the Enuma Elish and Genesis. Some just see it as evidence of the truth of Genesis. Babylon somehow intuited a close approximation of how it actually took place. Others, other explanations center around the fact that for 70 years, Israel was held in Babylonian captivity. And some say, well, look, the Babylonians not only pillaged the, the treasures uh, of, uh, of Israel, they took their sacred writings too. But... Most scholars argue that Enuma Elish is the older text and that Genesis chapter 1 is an adaptation of it. Now, I think that explanation of these many parallels between those two accounts makes a lot of Christians uneasy. After all, we are taught to understand the scriptures as being inspired by the Holy Spirit not by Babylon. So that's one thing that's often trouble. The second thing is you have Charles Darwin, right? You have the idea that this planet, that the life on this planet evolved over millions and millions and millions of years. 
not over the course of a week, as the first chapter of Genesis claims. Now, there are lots of ways in which people try to reconcile these two uh, accounts, the evolutionary account and the, and the account in Genesis. And many of those explanations come down to this. They say, well, look, evolution is just wrong. It's a lie. They argue that, that, under, that if you understand Scripture as divinely inspired, you're required to read it you know, literally. In this case, that means believing that the universe began on a Sunday and was pretty much a wrap by Friday afternoon. They say you can't just pick and choose what you think is, uh, what, the Bible, what parts of the Bible you think are true. I don't know if you've ever had somebody say that to you. Now, here's the thing. I think the Bible is an amazing book. Uh, I find so many of its narratives just so compelling. Like last week, Jeremiah defying the Babylonian invasion by purchasing land and saying, look, this is not over. A couple weeks before that, I mean, the Apostle Paul crafting this brilliant beautiful letter to his friend Philemon on behalf of his other friend Onesimus. I mean, I can be moved to tears by this stuff. So I take offense when someone tells me that because I don't believe our universe is only, I don't know, 7,000 years old, that somehow I am diminishing God's word. Well, I say I take offense, but actually I don't. I don't take offense because that would suggest I actually feel threatened by that accusation, and I don't. Because for me... I think about those Israelites. Those Israelites who, as they're being marched off to Babylon, look over their shoulder and see uh, their temple, God's home on earth. They see it just a, a, a smoking ruin. I imagine them seeing some of these Babylonians carting off their treasures, seeing their their, their king, a, a descendant of David, stumbling along with his hands tied behind his back. Imagine leaving the only land, the only life you've ever known for God only knows where, where they do, God only knows what. You know, you're there, there you are, without your temple, your king, your land, what do you have to sustain your sense of who you are? How do you maintain your identity when you're so disconnected from all that? What do you use to remind you of who you are? What could you take with you that the Babylonians couldn't take from you? Your stories? Your songs? Those things become your lifeline to the only life, to the life you used to know. And so when you're in Babylon, you keep telling those stories, keep singing those songs. But that too can be hard because sometimes it's, it's like Babylon wants to take those from you too as Psalm 137 attests. Begins, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our harps. 
For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So in addition to singing, in addition to retelling, start writing things down. You you, you compile things that have already been written. You edit, you organize, you put it together. You collect songs and prophecies and narratives. I mean, if you can imagine yourself being involved in that project, putting that together, what would be your hopes for the project? What are the questions that you hope that these writings will will answer? Answer well enough to sustain your people at a time when all the things that had sustained them are ripped away. What sort of questions, what sort of questions am I talking about? I mean, I think probably you want a question like, answered like, how did we end up here? How did this happen? How did we end up in exile? You'd want to, um, what does it say about our God? And maybe our God's limits. And you want to know, is there any hope of a return to the land? And if so, if, if we can return to the land, what, how, what can we do so that we can be uh, assured that this won't happen again? Right? And how do we conduct our lives here in the meantime? Those are the kinds of questions you would look to from these sacred texts. Now, I'm not saying it wouldn't be on the list of questions, but a question I don't think would be a high priority is, what is an explanation for the origins of the universe and its contents that will satisfy exacting scientific scrutiny 2,000 years from now? My point is not to suggest that it's impossible for the first chapter of Genesis to answer that question. I mean, if anyone could create a universe in less than a week, God could have. God could have done that in such a way uh, as to convince us that it took billions of years to do. And if that's what God wanted to do, boom, he nailed it. My point is simply that, is simply to challenge this notion that unless we read Genesis that way, we're not taking it seriously. On the other hand, my point is not to say that if you understand Genesis 1, unless you understand Genesis 1 in light of the questions that were asked during this time of exile as these works were compiled, that you you can't get anything out of it. No, clearly you can. Clearly you can just bring your own questions to the text and find uh, God's word speaking to you uh, in that way. But also say that can be a little dangerous to just rely on your own questions, right? Maybe you don't see the danger of that in Genesis so much, but when a, like a book like Revelation. I mean, we all read Revelation. Oh my gosh, it's talking about today. Well, you know what, 1860, they're like, oh, it's about the Civil War. Uh, you know, in the 1600s, oh, it's about the Reformation. Look, look the, the Pope is the Antichrist. Uh, and then before that, they read it and like, oh, look, it's talking about the Crusades. Anyway, all I'm saying is the kinds of questions you are, uh, that we bring to the text help us to understand what we get out of it. Uh, and maybe that the idea that we're just getting a scientific explanation is not a high priority. So maybe we need to put aside our 21st century questions and, again, imagine ourselves 
is uh, like being in a situation those Israelites in exile. And maybe if we do that, if we do that, we can not only you know, get, hear what this text is telling us, but have an understanding of that first issue, why it is that this text looks so much like the, the, this other myth, the, the Enuma Elish. Why would you borrow so much of the story uh, that's told by your oppressors? Why would you not make it as different as possible? Anyway, so while those parallels are important, there are, of course, big differences. And it's both those similarities and differences that, to me, speak of why we see this as a divinely inspired text. I mean, the similarities speak to who, just to who this God is, right? This, what we, the God we meet in the scriptures is a God who comes, who over and over and over again uh, enters into our situation. God does not communicate in a way that requires us to transcend ourselves, to somehow rise to God's level, to transcend our particular historical, cultural context. No, God enters in. He, God meets us where we're at. But God does not, uh, God does that so that God can bring us further than we ever imagined. And so by taking this structure, God is meeting Israel where it's at. It's this familiarity. Now, again, this immediate context, Babylon, Think about, you know, everywhere you look, see Babylonian architecture, not Israelite architecture. Every, you know, you're hearing people speak uh, Akkadian and not Hebrew. And they, and they are worshiping a god called Marduk, right? Not Yahweh. And so one of the things, when you read Enuma Elish, so you understand, oh yeah, this makes sense. This, this is a culture that is informed by a story like this. Uh, and it's, it's the differences in that between the cultures and all that, that that speak to why Genesis is such a powerful text. All right, so let me, let me give you a sense of the differences. According to the Babylonian myth, before there's any creation, there are two gods, uh, Apso and this chaos dragon slash serpent named Tiamat. They co-mingle, and produce a brood of other gods. And as many parents discover, kids are messy and loud. And for Apso, this really takes the shine off parenting. Like he wants to be done with it. And so he proposes to Tiamat, hey, let's kill him. Let's, let's get rid of him. And Tiamat says, you know, I'm not just a dragon or a chaos dragon slash serpent. I am a mother, and so no, let's not kill them. But uh, the brood hears about this plan on the part of their father, and they get a little nervous, except for Ea, E-A. He sneaks in, puts a sleep spell on his uh, father, kills him, and not only does he kill him, he takes his halo and wears it, and then, and this is true, uh, he, he calls his wife slash goddess and says, hey, I got a place for us to live. And she says, where? And he says, dad. And she says, your dad's house? 
She says, no, my dad, he's dead, but Rumi. So they move in <laughs> to his carcass. And while they're in the happy home slash carcass, they give birth to a son. And nursing this son, uh, and this is a quote, I love this, fills him with awesomeness. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, how, it's, that's how it's translated. Apparently, I don't, apparently the breast milk was like some sort of protein shake Red Bull mixture. Anyway, but the father says, ah, my son, the son. So my S-O-N, the S-U-N. And they name him Marduk. And now, Tiamat. First, she lets the whole thing slide with the kids killing dad. You know, kids will be kids. Uh, but, you know, now she started to get a little ticked. And so she conjures up a bunch of monsters to take on these gods that she created. And so there's a sort of battle. And she, what she had not anticipated is the awesomeness of Marduk. And what Marduk does is he harnesses the wind and he, he, he somehow harnesses it into Tiamat, the dragon, and she inflates. And then he takes a sword and he basically pops her and kills her. All right, that's, that's all before creation starts. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with creation? Ah, well, here's what it has to do, is in celebration of this victory, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth out of the dead body of Tiamat. He splits her in half out of the, the chaos dragon slash serpent slash nana. <laughs> Uh, that's, you know, one half becomes the, 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 the sky, one comes the earth. And then he starts, and then does the rest of the creating. And it's a story that's sort of custom made for Babylon's imperial ambition. A story that says violence, chaos, are just baked right into the cake. It is a world in which you are either victor or victim. You are master or you are slave. So, again, there are similarities between Genesis 1 and this account. It begins with darkness, the order of creation that follows. But it is those similarities that make the differences all the more striking. Because whatever else we may understand from Genesis 1, we understand this, that this world and the worlds beyond this world are not merely battlefields, where revenge is meted out. God does not create in celebration of bloodthirst and payback. Creation is just this gift. It's not molded out of victims. It comes into being through speech. C.S. Lewis uh, depicts it in, in uh, one of the Chronicles of Narnia as as. Uh, God's singing and the song just turning into creation. God speaks and it is so. When we start asking the questions, what are the questions that Israel's asking? We realize, you know what? A lot of the questions Israel's asking are questions we ask. Because I think we can relate to Israel. Every day we can find plenty of evidence that suggests, ah, yeah. Marduk is at it again. Hurricanes fueled by terrible awesomeness. 
bloodthirst and carnage in Eastern Europe. This sense that chaos is just operating under the surface. It's like this rattling sound coming from under the hood, from the engine block of the world, except it's one of those sounds that anybody, whenever anybody's there who could actually tell you what the sound is, then you don't hear the sound. And then when they leave, the sound comes back. That's anyway, that's how the world feels. Like something's rattling beneath the surface. And at some point you think the whole thing's just going to blow apart at any time. To people who feel that, Genesis 1 is divinely inspired. They are words of comfort. They are a reminder that chaos does not get the final word, that God has the final word. There's a God who stands over and above the chaos. So we stop and we hear God speak. Let there be. And it is so. And it is good. And God says, let there be. And it there is, and it, it was so, and it is good. And again, God speaks, it was so, it was good. Again, and again, and again. And what you find when you do that, when you let those words speak life into you, speak that goodness into you, you discover that no, you are not merely another critter fighting for survival. You were made in the image of God. You can begin to reflect that goodness, that life that is spoken of in this chapter. And that is those become words that are divinely inspired. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.